if you're listening to us, you have tuned in to the very first episode of A Thousand and One by One, where uh, we take a film from the wonderful book, A Thousand and One Movies to See Before You Die, dissect it, analyze it, and then ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. And I am Ian Woodington. And um, maybe we'll talk a little bit about why we're doing this and uh, how we came to the book. So Adam and I first met in high school, sophomore year. Again, I won't mention the name of the high school just to uh, not, you know, class this thing up a little bit. Um, So we found that we both had a love of cinema. I think the first thing that we clashed over was uh, sequels versus the originals. I think the argument was about Terminator versus Terminator 2. Well, yeah, but, okay, to, to be fair... I, yeah, I still think Terminator 2 is better than the first Terminator, but it's not like I think sequels are better. Like, I think the first Godfather is better than Godfather Part 2. Uh, yeah, and so do I. Okay, well... Anyway. But just to give context, that's, yeah. that's, how, that's how we found out that we were both, you know, in the same boat and both shared this huge love of, of all things film. Uh, how did you find the book? I was going to college um, up at Western Washington University, which is in Bellingham, and um, while there... My, you know, my film knowledge was expanding. I had more time to watch movies, and you know, trying to find movies seemed to be the hardest thing. Things I hadn't seen, things I wanted to see, um, but didn't know how to find new movies, and, and not like new releases even, but just new to me. Finding these obscure foreign films, indie films, whatever. Um, and so when I found this uh, book at just a, you know, just a standard Barnes and Noble up there. Um, Jack Nicholson's face in The Shining, just right there on the cover. Flipping through it, I was like, this is exactly the kind of book I need. This is definitely going to help broaden that view, get you out of the malaise of Hollywood blockbusters. Exactly, exactly. Um, And uh, unfortunately, the first movie I saw from this was uh, Sallow, or 120 Days in Sodom, uh, which is... Yeah, yeah. we'll we'll burn that bridge behind us when we get to it. Exactly, exactly. Um, But yeah, uh, Ian, what about you? Uh, so I was working at a uh, little mom-and-pop video store on Kamano Island, and I think a customer had brought it to my attention because I was, you know, probably, you know, doing my Randall thing from Clerks and just bitching and moaning and said, all right, so if you want to broaden your perspective, you got to check out this book. This is exactly what you need in order to, to expand your horizons. Uh, and went out, sought it out. Same thing grabbed my attention as well. This On the second edition, there is Jack Nicholson's face, huge peeking through the uh, the door in The Shining, and that was it. Yeah, one of the first films I also found was Sallow, which, again, goddamn that movie. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we're we loathing the day that we get to that one. Yeah. Um, so should we just yeah, let's jump just, right in? Let's, let's go. All right, uh, well, just considering how far Ian and I go back, um, it makes sense to start with a coming-of-age film, uh, and I would definitely call this movie the coming-of-age film. Yeah, it is quintessential in that regard. Exactly. Uh, And the movie we're going to talk about today is Stand By Me, directed by Rob Reiner, came out in 1986. Um, Our main characters are all four very, very young actors. Um, I think Jerry O'Connell was the youngest at 11. Uh, And then uh, River Phoenix, Will Wheaton, and Corey Feldman round out the four. Um, They were all 12 and 13 when they shot this. Um, With some nice supporting characters yeah, there too. Yeah, you've got Kiefer Sutherland in there uh, showing 
that he was just about to be typecast and <laughs> get stuck in roles like that for a little while. Obviously, did much better uh, come the series 24. And then, of course, John Cusack playing Denny, uh, Gordy's older brother. Great little cameo in there. And again, right as he was about to just blow up with you know things like Say Anything. Yep. Uh, he'd already done Better Off Dead, which is a great little oh, 80s I'm snowboarding so that, uh, that skiing movie, comedy. That's not in the book. I know. It's, it should be. I, I love Better Off Dead. It should be in there instead of, you know, I don't know, Spinal Tap or Breakfast Club. Oh, or, oh dude. Have you even seen Breakfast Club? I have. Okay, well. Don't worry. We'll get to that one. Yeah, okay. So, uh, speaking of This is Spinal Tap, uh, Rob Reiner has four films in the book, in, the, in its current edition, which is the seventh edition which is the book that we will be using for this podcast, uh, in case you're wondering visually. That's the one with uh, Amy Adams in Arrival on the cover. Yeah, of just it. in case you want to follow along. Exactly. Um, so anyways, uh, Rob Reiner has four films in the book. He has This is Spinal Tap, The Princess Bride, and When Harry Met Sally. And then, of course, Stand By Me. Um, I have things that I want to say about these later, uh, and it sounds like Ian might as well. Uh, yeah, no, Stand By Me is the only one of the four that I really feel should be in there. Uh, and I, I, I disagree, and I will say why at the end. We'll get to that. Um, so uh, 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 things that you found out, um, any review-type stuff? Yeah, there's a great little uh, there's a great little piece that I found. Uh, Dave Kerr in the Chicago Tribune when it came out, he uh, said, there's nothing natural in the way that Rob Reiner has overloaded his film with manufactured drama. Now, I feel that's a little unfair, when you take into account that you're making a film about a group of 12-year-olds, I mean, everything they do is going to be not hyper-real, but it's going to be a little bit melodramatic. You know, they're still finding themselves as young men. Um, and you're, you're, in the, you're in the late 50s. There's still that feeling of, you know, the, you know World War II will still be in their minds a little bit because their dads may have served or you well, we also get, just had the Korean War as well. well so and you, we get that from Teddy. Right. Teddy is constantly referencing his dad stormed the beach at Normandy. Exactly. So I, I totally agree. Yeah. I think that World War II was, was just, I mean, it, it is still at the forefront of their minds. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, and you, you could argue that the characters are made out to be caricatures a little bit. There's a little bit that's that's not so realistic. But try and put yourself in their positions, even if you weren't alive in the 50s. You know, put yourself in the position of you were 12 years old. I mean, yeah, you were a little melodramatic. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and while maybe some of the vernacular uh, has changed in the outfits, I mean, that mischief, that wanting to go into the woods, that wanting to sort of be at the summers, just thinking of the summers when you're that young and you're not in school, you know, the whole idea is what am I going to do to fill the day? What am I going to do that's going to get me to the end of the day? And, oh, there's a dead body. Let's go find it get I mean, on, and I'm, get on TV. I'm not going to lie. I, if a group, my group of friends back then came up with that idea, I'd probably be like, okay, that's what we're going to do. Well, yeah, because you, you wouldn't want to be the Vern no, character. No, you wouldn't nobody want, yeah. wants to be Nobody Vern. wants to be Vern. I brought a comb. I, except, except now, when it turns out that Jerry O'Connell... Sure. Is now I don't know if he is he still married. I don't follow that to kind Rebe of stuff. I is, think so. Is he still married to? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, he's he's the one that made out like a bandit. Um. So other things about the film. Did you you got box office stats on this one? Is I that... did. Yeah. So uh, eight million dollar budget uh, turned around and made fifty two million. Uh, it was the thirteenth highest grossing film of the year. Of course, if you're at all into stats and things like that, you'll know that Top Gun 
blew everything else out of the water in '86. Uh, came away with almost 180 million, just to no surprise. Yeah. Um, it currently sits at number 189 on the IMDb Top 250 and has a 91% fresh uh, score on Rotten Tomatoes. Again, if you're into that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to awards, um, didn't get a. Uh, I mean, it, I mean, it did get recognized. Um, it made the National Board of Reviews Top 10. Um, Rob Reiner, believe it or not, was actually nominated for a DGA for this. Um, which is really surprising. Which is really surprising. Yeah. Um, it's a great film, but it's not, directorially, it's not very strong. And we'll get into that as well. There's a, there's a couple of choices where you have to go, man, did you really, did you really mean to do that? This sure. That feels like there's definitely some, some areas of weakness and stuff that he would definitely improve upon later, especially in something like A Few Good Men. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um... Uh, it was nominated for two Golden Globes, Best Picture and Director, and then uh, the Academy Awards. The screenplay was nominated, um, and that's sort of the uh, the sort of stats, if you will, for the movie. Um, so let's get a little bit into what we thought of it, sure. things that we took away with. Absolutely. How many times have you seen it? Ballpark. I mean, yeah, probably. This is. I mean, watching it for the podcast, I would say this is probably my seventh or eighth time all the way through. Okay. Not counting, you know, the endless times it's been on TV. Oh, yeah, and it's always on TBS or yeah, something exactly. like that. Yeah, you? Uh, uh, I Ballpark 15 to 20 times I think I've seen this. <laughs> I, I really liked this one, really struck a chord with me, especially when I was younger, when I was about, I would say I was probably about 14 the first time I saw it. And then, yeah, I, I watched it quite a few times between now and then. It's one that I keep coming back to. I really love the soundtrack. Oh. In the same way that I've probably seen American Graffiti the same number of times and for the same reasons I love in this and in American Graffiti, which is George Lucas's uh, second film mm-hmm. um, from 1973. The soundtrack isn't just a sort of framework and it doesn't just sort of set the the time and the place what it it really becomes almost another character yeah it it really is woven into the fabric of the movie it's one of the things that when i think of the movie i remember the soundtrack just as much as i remember my favorite piece of dialogue or my favorite moment with a character or my favorite shot i mean that the soundtrack is fourth or fifth most important thing about this film well and you know the thing about the soundtrack too that i love is some of the songs that are played throughout the movie, I only know because of this movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, it's going through, and, and they the song comes on, and I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah. I only know the words to this part of the song because it's in Stan yeah, there's that there's that great moment before you have a very intense scene between uh, Chris Chambers and, and Gordy Lachance where... Vern and Teddy are ahead of them on the train tracks and they're singing the lyrics to Lollipop. Lollipop. There's no other reason you would know the lyrics to Lollipop in this day and age other than you, you know them because you've seen Stand By Me. Exactly. And because that's such a great moment of them skipping down the tracks and, yeah. and singing along to that. Yeah. Um, so some other things about the movie. Um, one thing that I, I love so much was... I, so I watched the documentary, The Making of um, Stand By Me. Mm-hmm. And so I, I have a major theater background. And listening to Rob Reiner talk about getting the the four young boys out to Oregon two weeks before shooting and playing, essentially playing improv games and theater games, they didn't know they were theater games when they were doing it. And it really built this connection and it really built this um, this trust that, that the boys had with Rob. Um, and one thing he talked about was wanting to build this connection so that 
he could do these extended takes. And I'm one. I mean, I'm curious about your your thoughts of him as a director because one thing I found interesting was he talked about wanting to have long takes and not just you know intercut a lot of scenes of dialogue or you know cut it so that it looked like it was continuous. And there's a particular scene uh, that I'm referencing specifically where they've just uh, gone through the junkyard and they've just had the the junkyard guys just basically called um, Teddy's dad a loony. Yeah, you know. the, the, they've had the whole thing with the chopper sick ball. Yeah, exactly, right? exactly. There's, there's the confrontation. That is, that is one of the, the the four or five best moments in the movie is where you really see Corey Feldman just utterly lose it at yeah. this guy. Was he saying, "I'm gonna pull off your head and shit down your neck"? Yeah, and, he is like, not. He, yeah, it's, it's it really is the the showcase moment for Corey Feldman. Yeah, but then so they're, so they're leaving, and. You know, it's like they kind of follow them around the bend, and the camera's on them for like three or four minutes, which doesn't mm-hmm. sound that long. But when you're four actors, all basically preteens, everybody has dialogue. Everybody has different bits they're doing. I think um, Chris has got his arm around Teddy, and and uh, Gordy's kind of walking ahead slightly, and Vern's trying to, you know, chime in, and and because you've got a tracking shot, you've got very specific marks that you've got exactly. to hit. Exactly. And it's not it's not like a, a beautiful shot. It's not like it's anything that would stand out in terms of, you know, the, its cinematography or anything. But just in terms of Rob Reiner trusting these four young actors to 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 do the lines, to do the blocking for, you know, a, a good solid 3 or 4 minutes. Yeah, I is, I would love to know how many takes. Exa- yeah, are. totally. Yeah. Um and you know, I don't think Rob Reiner's necessarily going to blow you away with his visuals. You know, I think it's more about... You no, know, and that's not... That's never been his thing. He's yeah. not a Ridley Scott. He's not a yeah. Kubrick. Yeah. But he does know... And the thing that I can't fault him for is he does know how to get incredible performances out of actors. Absolutely. Uh, it's A Few Good Men is one of Tom Cruise's best performances. One of the better Jack Nicholson ones. Mm-hmm. Um, at that stage in his career, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, you can't... You really can't fault Rob Reiner... As, as an actor's director. Oh, totally. Yeah. He, uh, and, and where, where you can tell that those, those theater games really paid off is in a scene much later in the film, uh, after the whole campfire thing, after the pie-eating contest, is where we really get to delve deep into Chris Chambers' psyche, the character played by River Phoenix, and this is where uh, it's, it's a real shame that he was cut down really as he was about to hit the prime of his life, he died in 93 yeah. in Johnny Depp's Viper Room of the same sort of cocktail of drugs and, and, and liquor that killed uh, Belushi. Uh, you can tell all that potential that he had. There's that moment where he's talking about, he's, he's holding the gun, it's his turn uh, to watch the, the campsite, and he's talking about you know why he was suspended temporarily you know the whole thing about stealing the milk money and you know i can't believe that you know this this betrayal that a teacher would do that to him you know and kind of frame him for stealing the milk money he talks about how the teacher turned up the next day with that that is it a bag or a dress that she won i think it's a, a, a skirt right yeah yeah um yeah no that that scene i mean you can tell that River Phoenix was going to explode and just take off in a huge way, which unfortunately he didn't really have the opportunity to. He had, obviously he had Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. He's got his little bit at the the beginning there. He did work with Harrison Ford previously in Mosquito Coast, which is one, not only one of the most underrated Harrison Ford performances there is, but it's also in Peter 
Peter Weir's canon, it's probably his most underrated film. I've never seen it. Oh, you you treat yourself. All right, all right. Mosquito Coast. Mosquito Coast. Okay. 80, 86, So same year as Stand by Me. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, but what I'm going to fault Rob Reiner for, even though he may be an actor's director, is he really cuts that scene short where where Chambers is really lets loose with the waterworks, and Gordy puts his arm around, and that scene cuts really really quickly. I feel because he just wanted to get to the deer scene a little, maybe a little faster that follows it. You know, the next morning oh, when yeah, Gordy's yeah. talking about the, you know, seeing the deer and it's a moment that he's never talked about or written about that until sense. now. Yeah, yeah. You know, with the, the Richard Dreyfus mm-hmm. narration there. Yeah. Can we divert the Richard Dreyfus narration? Yeah. How do you feel about it? Uh, I enjoy it. Okay. Um, especially because I don't necessarily associate Richard Dreyfus with narration. Um, he's got a, a very nice voice. Yeah, he's and, got a great voice for it. And I, I like too that we don't that we don't see him speak early enough in the movie to necessarily associate that that's his voice. I like that we just the ambiguity to, of it. Yeah, that we just know that it's that it's him. Yeah, and then we you know we just get that he's he's Gordy. So you know, I used to like it. Okay. And now my feelings about the film are: is it should have only been at the beginning and the end, just to set up. You know, he sat there by the side of the road. He sees the headline. You know, lawyer Chris Chambers. You know, killed in the in the deli, or or whatever. I believe it. He's, yeah, he's killed in the deli trying to break up a fight, and then, you know, just to establish that this is why he's telling the story is because this horrible tragedy has just happened to this friend that he cared very much about, and then to have it at the end just to talk about where all these people went. You know, he gives a brief blurb about, you know, what happened to Teddy and what happened to, to Vern and all of that. But in in the meat of the film, it does a lot of things that it doesn't need to do, which narration so often does. And I'll make a, a, a strange uh, correlation to uh, the Great Gatsby that just came out. Uh, the DiCaprio? The DiCaprio okay. one. The Tobey Maguire narration in that film completely ruined it for me. 100% down the line every moment that he spoke just was nails on a chalkboard to me and not because of his voice but because all he was doing was telling us what we were already seeing it was the worst kind of narration and once too often the narration in Stand By Me does the same thing like we in the, especially in the junkyard where he's talking about oh it was the best of times yeah I, I don't need you to tell me that it was the best of times I can see that yeah and same with the deer scene the reason but here's the reason I think it works in Stand By Me is that, and here's the, I barely remember that Great Gatsby. That's how little of an effect it had on me. Oh, it was awful. But I think what what works about the narration in Stand By Me is that he's writing this down. Sure. You know what I mean? Like, and I get I get it that it's the little, the little interjections. It's the little. It's the author coming through, just kind of letting that explanation come out. I think, I think that's why I buy it, is that I know. Maybe the first time through I didn't know it, but now that I've seen it a bunch, I realize that this is Richard Dreyfus typing out the story. And that's and that's a totally fair point. Yeah. But to counterpoint that, what what I would have liked to have seen done is, like I said, to just have the book ending and then you almost have a reveal at the end is, oh no, he wasn't just telling us this story. He's actually going to publish it and share it with the whole world. Now, if you if you don't have the narration as you go along, then you have that great reveal of, oh, this is actually going to be a book or at some point, right? Sure. But we don't know that he's writing it 
throughout, do we? Well, no, he does. He's well, especially in the deer scene, he says, "I've never, I've never spoken of it or written about it until now." Sure. So you kind of get the they they imply that he is. Yeah, it's kind of digging a little deep. And again, I I'm saying this maybe because I've seen the film fifteen or twenty times. Maybe my criticism at this point is becoming a little nitpicky. Sure. I'm totally gonna own that. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I don't know. Some of the narration just for me, it just hammers it home a little too hard. Sure, and that, I think that can be the problem with it. narration in general. Just in, in general, like you, you, there's a difference between the narration and something like Fight Club, yeah. where it it does serve the story and it it's there as to like kind of let you in and it breaks the fourth wall and it says, hey, come on, come on this journey with us, come have fun and come laugh at this stuff with yeah. us. And then there's narration like this and like Great Gatsby and I. I, I don't have another <laughs> right the uh, there. Yeah. I don't have another one for you right now as an example. But there's you know what I mean. There's that narration where all it does is just undercutting what you're seeing. Yeah. A lot of people said that, and I, f- I feel the same way about the original theatrical cut of Blade Runner, which I've never seen. Which with yeah. with his narrate. Yeah. I've so you've seen. just seen the director's cut without yes. the narration. Yeah. yeah. So the narration in in Blade Runner, and again when we get to it, well, I'm sure we'll do a comparison. But yeah, it does yeah. the same thing. All he's doing is just telling you what's happening on the screen. Sure. Which. I, I don't need that. Film is a visual medium. That's I can true. see I've what's happening. That. I've heard film have, is a visual medium. Have, have yes. you heard that? I have. I've seen it, too, actually, with my yeah. eyes. Yeah. It's, it's it's the film industry's great secret. <laughs> I'm glad you could come along with us on this. You know, I do what I can. I do what I can. <laughs> um, any other hot takes or things? I mean, I think when I think about movies that should be in this book, you know, they've got to have memorable scenes and... Man, I feel like this one just is chock full of them. Oh, yeah, no. It's, it's got the pie-eating contest, which, can we talk about that? Yeah, we can. I am not a big fan of fart, puke kind of humor. It just, it's never, it's never been my thing. No. But for whatever reason, I laugh so hard. Well, it just, it comes so far out of left field. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And it, it is something inherent. And I, again, I, I wish I had had the time to, to do the research and actually read King's novella. Yeah, me too. I, I do, do you know if it's in there? I don't. But it is something that, that strikes me as being, having read a couple of King's novels now, like I just finished up uh, The Stand mm-hmm. and uh, Salem's Lot. I'm, I'm doing some of his earlier stuff. Uh, it does strike me as something that could spring from a mind like that, just yeah. to go, yeah, I'm going to mess with you guys for a few minutes here. We're going to take this fun little tangent, and then we'll come back to the story. Yeah, but it it is a great. I was I was conflicted about it because I do, I I want Will Wheaton to have that moment of he does he has the moment of telling the story, but I would love to see an extended piece of dialogue where he actually gets to deliver this monologue. But the whole point of it is to really show his power as a, as a storyteller and to really I mean the whole point for me of having actually visualizing it is you get to take some of the stress off of a young actor not having to deliver that's what is that you would have to guess you as an actor you know and oh, having performed of, oh. how many pages do you think that would be if you were to perform that that seems like it's I mean, a good eight telling pages, the whole story like an eight 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 to ten pages worth of dialogue yeah I mean probably probably not that much because they do cut away to the characters within within the story speaking. No, I mean if you were to do the whole thing, oh, if like you were to remove really the visual just have and just, and oh, just tell the story. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's quite some. That's quite a lot of pages. But it but it's a great little moment that comes out of left field and really, even if you don't like that moment in the movie, it's it does have a purpose and it really sells the fact that this kid one day will be a great storyteller. Yeah. Um and. 
another thing about this movie that I think I, I, I probably understood before, but it just it hit home so much more just kind of being a dad now, is that this, this movie really is a story about dads. Um, and not just Gordy's, which I think is the most sort of obvious, you know, him trying to... Well, he's the only one we get to actually see. Yeah, exactly. And Vern, I don't think, we don't see Vern's at all. Vern's is the one that we don't really get any kind of reference to. Sure. But, so Gordy obviously was playing second fiddle to John Cusack. And we get it in all the flashbacks. We get it from what Gordy says. And now that Denny, the the John Cusack character, has died, you you get the feeling he's going to play second fiddle for the rest of his life. Absolutely. And that's what's going to help spark that need to write in him look i i can prove myself i can do something just as good as what denny would have done yeah right but then we also you know in that chris chambers um scene where he's breaking down about the, the milk money and the the teacher taking it he said he, he says something close to this where he says i just wish i could go somewhere where nobody knew me yeah so he's well he's not maybe i mean we hear that his dad hits him and he's on a mean mean streak but it's not just that it's that if he stays in this town, his name, his lineage, it's going to drag him down. Yeah, no, he's always going to be, oh, you're that Chambers. That Chambers, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then we also have Teddy's dad, who apparently is in an insane asylum because he put Teddy's ear to a stove and tried to burn it yeah. off. And these aren't good relationships with their fathers, but I just I kind of realized that this really is, there's, there's so much to do with that, you know? And there, I, I think even Gordy says at one point, you know, I don't understand how Vern could love his, or how Teddy could love his dad so much after what he did, because Teddy speaks about his dad with so much reverence. Oh, absolutely! It's amazing to me. Yeah, and I don't know. That's, I just, that, that's that idealism. Yeah, you know, like for all my dad's fault, he still stormed the beach. Yeah, right. Absolutely. You know, that's, and it really speaks to, you know, how we idolize our fathers and and how we maybe we want to be like them. And this film is a is a, a sort of call to you know be your own man you don't have to grow up to be like your dad kind of thing and this is for me where i and i really only started to to think about this on this viewing of the film for the podcast was i don't think it's necessarily fair to call stand by me a coming of age film because with everything that these boys have already been through before we meet them during the summer they've already come of age they've already with the exception of Vern, they've all already gone through something terrible i mean gordy's brother has died so he's already seen what you know mortality looks like he already has has come to terms with the fact that oh one day i'm gonna die life is is finite and can be taken from us in an instant you've got um chambers dad who is an alcoholic and you know we get the feeling that okay maybe he regularly beats him and then you've got you know Teddy, who deals with, oh, my dad has gone off the deep end, he's lost it, you know, he's dealing with the idea that, that sanity is something that can be taken from you or can be manipulated or things like that. So this is a, this is more about becoming adults, and you do feel like by the end of the movie they are older than their years imply, like they have gone through something. Oh, sure. And are continuing to go through something. Yeah. You know, even at the tender age of 12 or 13, these, these boys are already well on their way to manhood yeah yeah i don't totally disagree with you but i feel like this event the the journey to see the dead body and seeing ray brower's body is what pushes them over the edge well i I kind of but it's funny because it while it it works for others it, it doesn't like 
we basically get we hear that Teddy and Vern don't really do much with their lives, but Chris, who had a I mean whose name was going to basically drag him down if he stayed in this town, took the high class the the higher the higher level classes with um with Gordy, goes on to be a lawyer you know and I, I thought that I mean. I guess I just wonder what that summer really did for those boys because I think maybe they don't they don't go on that journey. Chris doesn't break down in front of Gordy. They don't really share that connection throughout. Does Chris take those classes later on? Hmm. Does Chris's life change? And I maybe that's not the same thing, you know, coming of age versus like a, just a strong turning point in your life. But I feel like I feel like seeing that dead body. I mean, obviously, really really impacted their lives and I, I think I well, will call at, it at least at least Chambers and, and La Chance yeah, it yeah. really affects them I mean and this would be a great question I think for, for Gideon and Evans the writers is why did you make Vern and Teddy caricatures and you know and then decide to just flesh out the other two instead I mean could we have struck a little bit more of a balance well, and some which of the... I think they tried to do with Teddy and then don't quite go all the way with and don't even bother to at all with Vern yeah well, it's funny, some of the changes, because I think one of the big changes at the end with the gun, it's not Gordy in the book who points the gun at the gang, it's Chris. Right. And Rob Reiner even admits in the documentary that they, they basically made this Gordy story and switched that to Gordy with the gun. And Right. And, I, and that seemed like, from what I remember reading, is it was very much motivated by uh, Reiner having to live in the shadow of his dad who was this well-established comic this well-established actor and yeah. like I need to get out from under that and make a name for myself which uh, which he's done yeah oh I think absolutely he's done very successfully well and you know I mean I, I I know Carl Reiner more as the name yeah and I know as a, I, as a legend I know and, and right. how impactful he's been but in terms of the the work that I that I've been witness to, I know Rob Reiner more than I know Carl Reiner. Sure. I mean, his movies just happen to be more around the time that I've been watching movies mm-hmm. and probably fall more, more into my wheelhouse than some of Carl Reiner's work. Of course. I mean, most people listening to this as well will probably only know Carl Reiner for the Ocean's movies. Sure. As well, a, yeah, yeah. As a, well, as an actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but he's also a, a prolific... He's also a prolific writer in his own right. Oh, yeah. And, Any other things about the movie that you want to bring up? Yeah, there's a, there's something that really struck me on this viewing again as well. There's something that really before we get to the milk money scene, which I think we've established is the turning point of the film. It's it's the great moment. It's the great acting showpiece in the film. Is really seeing this talent that River Phoenix has. Mm-hmm. Is um, there's a moment just before they, I, I think it's just before the train dodge sequence, um, or you know where they have to not the train dodge. That Teddy does, but where they're running away from where the they're tra- running away, but they're when they're on the trestle and yeah. they've got to run from the train is where they're walking down the tracks, and they're talking about, um, you know, giving up. You know, Gordy has that moment where he wants to give up the classes, and Chris tells him he's stupid for doing that. But they talk about a dream that Chris has, where he makes reference to something where they were all in a tree, and he saved essentially may have saved Teddy's life, probably more like saved a limb from being broken or things like that, where he catches Teddy from falling. He talks about the dream where, um, you know, every time I have this dream, you know, I I don't catch him. And it really seems to bother him. And how he only just, he gets a few hairs on the way down is what he says. That moment 
is so underrated because it tells you absolutely everything you need to know about that Chris Chambers character, about how much he cares about his friends and how loyal he is, how he would do anything for them, and how he, you know, loses sleep at night yeah. because of how much he cares. The whole, uh, I wish the hell I was your dad. Yeah. If you were, you wouldn't be talking about take, about taking any shop classes. Exactly. Yeah. And that's and that circles back around to why I say it's 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 more of a coming of adulthood kind of movie rather yeah. than them you know, becoming young men. It's more sure. about them becoming adults because the way that Chris, you know, sort of is a father figure to the rest of them. Yeah. In a, in a strange sort of way. He's definitely the leader. I oh, mean, absolutely. Yeah, and, yeah. and there's, there's no debating that. But it's... it's I looked at, at Chris as more as not just the leader, but I looked at him as the father figure of the group this time around is really what I caught. Absolutely. From his performance. And again, such a shame that River Phoenix was cut down so early in the prime of his life. I think he was about to start shooting... Uh, Interview the Vampire. Some people may not know this. He was originally supposed to play the Christian Slater role in that before he died. I did not know that. Useless useless trivia for you. That's not useless at all. Right. That is wonderful. I mean, Interview with the Vampire isn't a great movie, but how much better could it have been with River Phoenix? That is a tough, teeny tiny role. That is a tough, (laughs) tough question. One of the questions for the ages. Maybe I, in an alternate universe, there's a yeah. I don't. I don't mind that being unanswered, though. Yeah, I'm, that's I'm okay totally with fine. That. But but what I what I do lament is, you know, I look at a, a lot of the roles that I see DiCaprio taking now. I mean, the turning point in DiCaprio's life was obviously working with Scorsese and doing Gangs of New York, doing The Aviator, and things like that. And for me, those are the kinds of roles that I feel like River Phoenix could be taking. I imagine my wife and I were talking about this. Imagine because she loves. Leonardo DiCaprio I mean has been in love with him since obviously Titanic where she went and saw God knows how many times sure um, but she, we also really liked The Revenant a lot and we were talking about after watching Stand By Me like imagine River Phoenix in a role like The Revenant and what he could have done with that yeah right so absolutely it's, it, it's one of those great great losses that I don't think people that's not really in, in the public's mind anymore obviously because it was you know, 25 years ago now that he died. Yeah. But, I mean, it, it was a huge loss to cinema, and you can see that even in this early role. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he tapped into something in the movie that just made him very believable. And, yeah. and as opposed to Will Wheaton, who I'm, I'm not here to trash Will Wheaton, but you have those two crying scenes. You have the, the crying scene with, with Chambers, where he's talking about the, the whole milk money thing that we talked about, and then you have the scene where... Gordy seems to lose it for no reason, just because we've got to have him have a crying scene too, and he's got to, you know, come of age as well, and then pick up the gun and point it at Kiefer. His his crying is awful, and I am gonna trash Will Wheaton a little bit because I, any, any I, of you I, I want to trash him too, but you just you yeah, right. Well, here's what I'm sick of. I'm sick of being told that I look like Will Wheaton. You look like Will Wheaton. I get told that a lot. I don't see it. I know. I don't see it either. But in the last three jobs that I've had, I can't count. The number of times, and of course, it 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 is such a huge strike to the ego. Will, if you ever hear this, you're not a bad looking guy, but my here's my thing about Will Wheaton. So I watched the the, the making of documentary, and he's he's in it. Yeah. And here's what I'll say: as an actor, I've done a lot of shows. I've done a lot of shows I've been proud of, but once they're done, the lines tend to go away. He in the documentary knew those lines verbatim as they were written. And I just want to, I, all I want to say is let it go. 
I get that it was a big deal, and don't forget the movie, but you don't have to remember every single one of your lines. Sure. You can, you can let that go. Dude, you had you had the next generation. That's yeah. just as big, if not bigger. Oh, sure, sure. But I'm sure those they, residuals are wonderful. I'm sure they are. Yeah. Yeah. Do you do you have anything else? I mean, I I'm a huge fan of Kiefer Sutherland. Like I, I really enjoy Kiefer in this movie as much as it may have brought about some typecasting on his part. But sure. that, that confrontation between him and River Phoenix at the end, again, is one of the four or five great moments. In a movie that is chock full of great moments. Yeah. Is is almost episodic in that sense. The the confrontation before Gordy comes, before Will Wheaton comes in and with his and, gun and, and you know, yeah. T V T V movie of the weeks it all up. Yeah, it kinda does. Uh, yeah. that that confrontation between Kiefer and River is just incredible. Like yeah. the the air is electric between those two, and if I remember right, they deliberately kept the boys separate. It wasn't that they kept them separate. I mean, there was a little bit of that, but what I, from what I could what I researched, Kiefer was just a dick to them on the set, which is absolutely like the, right the boys. I rem- Jerry O'Connell said, "I was scared of Kiefer on the set. Yeah. I I just and and it worked because when they did those scenes, I mean, I totally bought, totally bought." That those kids were scared of Kiefer Sutherland. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's perfect. I I I do think that between that and again the milk money scene, I, that is my favorite scene in the whole movie. Is that that little bit where they go back and forth? Yeah, it's fantastic, and it really spoke to the power of both of those guys at such a young age. Yeah, I think the only other thing I want to say is that this movie gave me one of my absolute favorite curse words. Um, not just by itself but how it was used in the movie um somebody i think it's during the the chicken scene with Kiefer and then the other car oh yeah yeah uh I, and I actually think it's chris chambers brother talking to the guy who loses it's, it's, it's eyeball chambers this, yeah he says you let him beat you you cock knocker <laughs> cock knocker has become one of my absolute favorite insults i know and that's that's another thing that makes this movie great and again i'm sure it's in the book for nostalgic reasons and because there was a wave of that 50s nostalgia that happened in the 80s right there's there's so many great pieces of of 50s slang and things like that in the movie that's Cockknocker being one of them oh yeah and i love and that's another great again in a movie filled with great moments the mailbox baseball is incredible i laughed as a child as a, as a very young man, that was just hysterical to me. Well, and that there are rules. Like, did you did you catch the rules? And, and innings. Oh, they have well, full innings. Well, because there are outs. Yeah. Like, did you get did you get that? <laughs> oh yeah. So apparently, an out is if you what destroy a wooden yeah. mailbox. Yeah. If you hit it, but it stays hanging on, it's a foul ball. Like I thought that was great. I oh, love that there amazing. were some legit rules to this car baseball that they were doing. I and and again, I wonder if that's in the script or because that seems to me like one of those things like, oh, this isn't very fleshed out. Let's have some fun with this. What is it? Yeah, it's only the third inning. It'll be an unofficial game. Yeah. Oh God, it's like, ridiculous. Like they do this on a regular basis. Oh, they must. How does this small, how does Castle Rock, Oregon have this many mailboxes? Right. I got to imagine at this point, people, did they must just be buying it, them in bulk. Or yeah, or at least they, they go national with it or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> they get out of state to do it. Like, we, we've hit this whole section of the I-5. Oh, well, let's hop over to the 405 or something. So, coming to the end here, uh, Ian, uh, does this movie deserve to be in 1001 Movies You Must See Before You Die? I think so. I, I do. Okay. I really do. I do, too. I do. And, and what I alluded to earlier um, that I'm going to kind of bring back now is about Rob Reiner and the movies that he that he's directed that are in this book. And again, that's this is Spinal Tap, The Princess Bride, 
When Harry Met Sally and Stand By Me, which we were talking about. And the thing about those movies, and while like I, I'm not going to say now for any of those if I think they should or shouldn't be in the book, but what I'll give Rob Reiner, and I didn't think about it until I was doing the research for this podcast, is that I think he is a wonderful, I don't want to say genre, but kind of a genre director. And at least for me, when I think about, and you know, you know, I hate throwing labels out there, but when I think about like if somebody was to say, I want to watch a coming-of-age movie, Stand By Me would be the first thing that comes to my mind. Somebody wants to watch a funny mockumentary. This is Spinal Tap. Oh, that was the that was the predecessor. Exactly, that, that was I, the one that. Set I want to watch. Tone. I want to watch a good romantic comedy, when Harry met Sally. I mean, it just. I feel like it just falls out. Hmm. You know, and even one that's not in the book but should be. If somebody said, "I want to watch a good courtroom drama," a few good men. You know, yeah, I I would take out if we if we have to do, the, the Rob Reiner. If we were talking about him directly, I do feel like Princess Bride should come out and. A few good men should go in. I would say that about this a spinal tap instead. And again, I I can't either agree or disagree. It has been way too long since I've seen Spinal Tap. I know that it didn't leave a huge impression on me the first time I saw it. But fear not viewers, it will get Well and I I will say its that own I, episode. I don't know why I said viewers instead of listeners. Hey, whatever. You're not watching this, you're listening to it. Hopefully you're listening to it. I hope. Um, and see, I, I watched Princess Bride like a couple months ago, and that movie still holds up. And I cannot wait for it to come out on Criterion, because oh, I'm going to buy it. So deal with that. Oh, man. Criterion Criterion took a, took a step down in my book as soon as they let Breakfast Club in. But we will get to that. Oh, Breakfast Club will have its own episode. And this will, dear listeners, will get ugly. Yeah, it, it probably will. Uh, so that's two yeses from us. Okay. Stand by me. So we're off to a good start. Absolutely deserves to be in a thousand one movies to see before you die, and uh, that's good. Um, if for some reason you haven't seen this movie, something to keep in mind: it's only eighty eight minutes. So much happens in this movie, and yet it is only eighty eight minutes, including credits. Yes. So watch the damn movie. If for some reason you've made it this far in your life and you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor and watch Stand by Me. You might want to reevaluate who you are as a person if and, you haven't seen it at this point in your life. And then watch it. Yeah. 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 And then you can feel a little better about yourself. And and you will be less offended the next time that we call you a cock knocker for having not seen this movie. Well, that's it for the, the end of our first episode of 1001 by 1. Uh, I'm Adam. I'm Ian. And we will see you next week with another episode.